Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. We are recording in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp, Swamp Flicks. So the last time I saw y'all individually was like with two very rowdy queer crowds. Uh, <laughs> You're right. Yeah, Brittany and I went to the last day of Jazz Fest to watch Melissa Etheridge, and it was just <laughs> a tent full of lesbians singing their hearts uh, out. It was like a religious experience. Yeah. Incredible. Come to my window. Oh, that was. Did she do that song? She, oh, yeah, oh, she did. And she knows exactly when to stop singing it and let uh-huh. like the echo of the crowd bounce That's off right. that tent roof. Yeah. <laughs> Turn around, and Brandon, both hands were in the air, and he's like, I'm coming home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was getting that like uh, Irma Thomas in the gospel tent, like full oh, yeah. religious it's experience. Like, it's going through you. <laughs> but it was more like singing along with like a 90s cassette. Like, yeah. really, like it was like a time travel experience. It was, yeah, there was like a, a girl next to me who kept going, hey, you want to go get drinks? I'll pay for them. I'm like, I'm not leaving. And she had a, a cap that said, jam out with your clam out. Nice. And I'm like, this is this That is lady was looking to get laid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, Melissa played in succession. She played the guitar. The harmonica and then the drums, which I found very impressive. And she had like ten different guitars. Oh, she yeah. would instead of like outfit changes, like there was this one. It was pure turquoise. It was Ooh. gorgeous. And then she had like bejeweled tails on each of them. Oh, it was it was so good, incredible. Um, but yeah, so I'm ready to invest in the next cruise that goes to Etheridge Island. That's a thing. <gasps> what? <laughs> where you swim around a pool and she just sings. Everyone's at a resort. jamming out with the clam out. <laughs> Everyone's jamming out. Island. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I'm ready to take a loan out to go to this now. <laughs> and then on Friday night this week, James Hahn and I went to go see The Doom Generation. Hell a yeah. heterosexual film by Greg Araki from Ooh, 1995. Not quite heterosexual. Not very, really. <laughs> very heterosexual. I was reading about the movie a little bit. So that title, um, he would like subtitle his films like a homo film by Greg Araki. Another homo film by Greg Araki. <laughs> But this one, um, someone told him, like, the movies that you're making are too punk and upsetting for gay audiences. They want, like, wholesome representation that you're just not giving them. I will give you money if you make a straight movie. We'll produce that instead. Hmm. So he made a heterosexual film by Greg Araki, which is, like, the Iraqi version of a straight movie. Not very straight. Right. (laughs) Just palpable sexual tension between the two male leads. Yes. Which is gorgeous. And the movie edges you wanting... (laughs) Those two men to kiss the yes. entire movie and uh, violently pulls that uh, payoff away from you at the end. Yeah, It stars Rose McGowan and two beautiful himbos <laughs> on a road trip through the hell of modern America in like the Gen X 90s. They just keep eating tons and tons of junk food in a version of America that is both about to be raptured and everything costs 666 every time they get rung up for their like piles of food. And they keep having... What starts off as like uh, adulterous sex and starts turning into an uh, inevitable male male female threesome at the end, and uh, then the realities of what modern life in America actually is like kind of ruins that um, mm-hmm. erotic payoff at the end. All of the dialogue is like very clueless and Heather's like Valley Girl kind of airheaded bullshit, um, and all of the violence is post Tarantino kind of like natural born killer style like over the top hyper violence. And everything is over-designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like a cool punk magazine that like was just like lost to the dustbin of history. Right. 
I fucking love that yeah, movie. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was great. It, yeah, and the aesthetic style is so interesting. It's like a glossy page that someone just like put in the trash. Yeah, I thought it was like so funny, so like nasty. And like, I just loved all of these little like post-apocalypse capitalist society, especially this like they have this fast food restaurant with, I don't know, it's like got like a little dinosaur like <laughs> oh it's like a dinosaur eating a cow and i don't know every everybody is just miserable and uh fucking angry and horny <laughs> it did remind me of we talked about this last time but jerry springer passing away that like 90s of fast food culture and trash tv and just how like disgusting and awful and nihilistic pop culture was in the like mid 90s and this movie like really captures that and it's fucking punk and it goes hard and it's very yeah. funny. Freeway came up when we were talking about it. Freeway for sure. too. Yeah. yeah. And Terminal USA, which was a movie you showed me. Yeah. I need to see this. Like yeah. I find that comforting. If that yeah. makes oh, sense. Yeah. So, I like totally got it. I was like, yep. Yeah. I remember, I remember this. And uh, like 20 years before anyone would have tweeted, give Parker Posey a sword. Gregor Rocky <laughs> gave Parker Posey a sword in this movie. Yeah. Which is great. And the crowd was like a bunch of young, queer weirdos, like hooting and hollering. And, laughter the yeah, whole time. Having a great time. I went home after the fact and read up on like what this restoration means. And like basically this movie has been out of print for a long time, except on this like R-rated DVD cut that came out probably like 15, 20 years ago. That cut out basically anything you could think of that's like transgressive about it. Like mm. all of like the actual male eroticism and like the violence that goes a little too far. They cut out 13 minutes of the movie. Boo. And it's like all of the stuff that like makes it special. So if you haven't seen the Doom Generation and it's like director's cut, which has been like unavailable since the 90s, like this new restoration that's going around in theaters, it's currently playing at the broad. It will be on Blu-ray, I'm sure, by the end of the year. And they're about to restore his movie Nowhere with the same treatment. I think it's like some of the most essential cinema, like making the rounds right now is like kind of an eye opening experience. It makes me want to like watch every movie from that guy. Yeah. I haven't had that experience since we watched all those Almodovar movies where it's like, I need all of it <laughs> you know, in my brain. Yeah. I've, I've seen images popping up on like Instagram, like the scene where they're all sleeping in the bed together. So it's been on my periphery but i guess it's getting a lot of attention right now because of the re-release and i had no expectations going in and it was such a fun ride like such a pleasant surprise i'm wondering how many people are going to get that blunt goth bob that yeah. uh <laughs> rose mcgowan has in that movie i thought about it it's coming you know? back that's right <laughs> well, what else have you been watching I have been watching a lot of stuff. I'm going to talk about two short films that I watched. One is The Black Tower, uh, which was directed in 1987 by John Smith, who's this like avant-garde British filmmaker. And I, I just watched it on YouTube. It's a really strange short film. It's about it's from the it's like a diaristic perspective of this guy who starts seeing this black tower appearing wherever he goes and it's kind of like following him around London and it just kind of has this like mysterious energy and he starts to become paranoid he like holds himself up in his house and he like doesn't really understand what's happening everybody thinks he's crazy and 
the style is really I thought it was pretty experimental. It's like almost like a series of photographs, kind of like La Jete, but it is it is video, but there are really like no people or characters in it. It's just this like inner monologue, like extreme close-ups of um household appliances and like the colors associated with them. And it's it's like a really jarring kind of strange movie and it really i thought it really captured a foreboding sense of paranoia for like i don't know a pretty limited um scope and it was like i think it was 27 minutes so i would recommend that and then i watched a film by an iranian filmmaker and poet faro farokzad i don't know if i pronounced her name correctly um, it was called The House is Black. It was directed in 1963. And it's a documentary of a leper colony. And the film is about like ugliness and suffering. But it's a really compassionate film. I mean, it, that could easily become like extremely exploitative or like just portraying people as like icons of suffering but it's a really beautiful humanistic movie about these people that are like horribly disfigured but continuing to just live life in each other's company and just grappling with the life that they have and the life that they can't have in the reality of their situation and I wanted to bring it up because she she was a very young filmmaker And she actually died when she was 32 uh, because she got in a car accident. So this is the only film that she ever made. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, Which is like kind of in keeping with our theme today. But it's really, she has this like long um, poem about beauty and suffering in life. And I don't know, it's, it's just sad that she didn't get to make more films. But that's available on the Criterion channel. Um, So two like super (laughs) chipper Films yeah. recommendations. Yeah. yeah, you put the one Leper Colony movie on on like Monday, and I just noped <laughs> within five yeah. minutes. I'm like, yeah, just yeah. this is yeah. tough stuff. But it, it was very beautifully shot. Yeah, though, from what I could tell. There's this book by Susan Sontag, and it's this. It's like a long kind of essay called "On the Suffering of Others" about how like images of suffering are used, and especially for like during war, like the the purpose of images of suffering and how it can be used as like propaganda or to like further some political aim or paint a group of people as like being allotted suffering intrinsically um, and how like it's really important to treat images and media of people suffering with like reverence and being intentional. And I think this is a great iteration of that but uh yeah if you're not like if you're in the mood for something cheerful i wouldn't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> yeah um so Brittany, what have you been watching so i recently watched the year between it is the directorial debut of alex heller and she directed the film she also stars in the film and the film is also based on her um struggles with mental illness um, but she plays Clements, and Clements is this like twenty year old girl who um or woman who is um has some a hard time in college. She's 
diagnosed with being bipolar. So she kind of has a little bit of a meltdown and then she has to go home to her hometown and uh, live with her parents again. And her dad, Steve Buscemi. Um, and <laughs> yeah. he's great in this movie. I feel like he hasn't been around a lot lately. Like, well, yeah. Nice to see him on the new. The last thing I saw him do was um, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. But yeah, film-wise, this is like the first thing I've seen in a very long time. It is super funny, but it's like dark humor where you feel, I don't know, there everything that she does, that Clemens does while she's like having a lot of these breakdowns is like very in your face. And you're like watching her make bad decisions, but because of her, her mental illness and like not what she wants to do. But there's just certain things that happen where like, I mean, I laughed and I'm like, I feel like shit for laughing, but it's like, I love when movies make me feel super uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and this one totally did it. And I don't know, like a lot of people I know that are like bipolar or have issues with like schizophrenia or whatever, like there's the way that they cope with it is humor. So I kind of get the humor of it, even though I don't suffer with anything. Um, So I kind of had like an issue where I'm like, Am I a shithead <laughs> for laughing at this? Is this like the purpose of it? And the the purpose of the film was is to be like a comedy, but also kind of like kind of raising a little bit of awareness. Kind of like Cosi. Yeah, like Cosi. Yes, where I'm like, I love this movie, but it's horrible. Yeah. Um, I do like that the main character does have a mental illness. So you're not like watching like an actress like pretend, which is weird. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Oh, that will come up. <laughs> Very relevant. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was good. Um, I'd recommend it, especially if you're into like watching new shit coming out. Yeah, that reminds me of like Maria Bamford's comedy too. She, I forgot what her. Um, she had a TV show for a while, and she had like a mental breakdown, and she had to go and live with her parents. And it's very much this. It's like kind of bleak humor yeah but it's like an excellent way of processing that i think around that time too she did a stand-up special in her living room where the entire audience was her parents yeah yeah giving like confessional stand-up jokes to an audience of two people who were like (laughs) not on her wavelength yeah i i really really like her but i yeah i i think that that's like a super important form of art you know (laughs) yeah it was a good one um well james what have you been watching I've been watching a lot. I <laughs> I recently took a few days off of work, so I had lots of movie time. Watched a lot of good stuff, but I think the movie that most stands out in my mind is a Paul Schrader film from 2013 that I watched <laughs> called The Canyons. <laughs> it's pretty notorious. Uh, I've been wanting to see it for a really long time. Uh, it's got a pretty bad reputation. I think we watched it on Tubi. Yes. Which seems like the perfect, it's such a Tubi movie. It stars Lindsay Lohan and the porn actor James Dean playing a psychopath porn star, essentially. So everyone's kind of playing themselves. She's like a washed up actress. He's like a guy that's doing like revenge porn and... And the film is shot on a super low budget. It has that like really gross, like digital early 2000s look. And the plot is very soap opera, like love triangle sort of stuff. And it's like, it's a really awful, awful film. But what's so interesting to me is like, there's shots throughout of like, he keeps going back to these images of empty theaters, of like cinemas that have been run down 
And it seems to be making a statement that like movies are dead and that movies suck now. So I had a really interesting experience watching it where I'm like, this is a bad movie, but it seems aware that it's very bad. And it seems almost like a statement that like, look at how awful movies are nowadays, this direct to streaming. So I don't know. It was like, it's really bad. It's bordering on like it's entertaining because it's so bad. But um, I don't know. I was perplexed. I'm kind of sold on this. Yeah, yeah I'm was, interested. It's awful. Like, <laughs> Lindsay Lohan is bad. James Dean is bad. I didn't know the she right... played in another movie. Like, I've seen mm-hmm. her in I Know Who Killed Me. Have y'all yeah. seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I like Lindsay Lohan. I like her, too. She's, so she's actually the best part of this movie, yeah. acting-wise. Awesome. Following. And the, the um, it was written by Brian Easton Ellis. Oof. Who did, Brent, like, yeah. American Psycho and... He's kind of an edge lord sort right. of dude. He's just gross. He's a gross dude. Schrader yeah. can be gross too. <laughs> yeah. But the whole vibe of it, it's like gross, grimy, like bottom of the barrel Hollywood stuff. It looks cheap. It feels cheap. It's poorly acted, poorly written. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> like, so great. I'm like, really, I was drawn to it because I'm like, it's, Paul Schrader knows that this is bad. And he seems, does he know it's bad? That's the question. And I want everyone to see it and come back to the podcast. Like, how self-aware is yeah. this movie? Hannah watched it with me, so she yeah. might have some thoughts. Well, I, th- I think he is self-aware. But I guess my question was, like, does it matter if he's self-aware or not? Like, I if <laughs> I was thinking, like, that I wished I had watched this movie without knowing it was Paul Schrader. Because I feel like I had, like... Like, I love a lot of his films, so I feel like I had director bias. Like, okay, he's, like, an intelligent filmmaker, so he, obviously, these are, like, intentional choices, Uh where it's, like, if it was someone that I had never heard of, I don't think I would have given any benefit of the doubt, because it is not a good movie. So, like, I get, like, making a statement about the state of film, but you've also, like, added, like, more bad film right to the <laughs> pot the thing, you know like at this time in his career like i watched another movie he made with nick cage from this time period that was really bad too like seems like he was kind of a critical darling and then he had to do these kind of direct to video movies that were pretty low budget pretty poorly written and that was like his career for like a, over a decade i'm gonna bring a hot take into this yeah let me i hear don't it. think first reformed is like particularly well made either i think people agree with the politics of it and it's got a couple good moments, oh. but it's not especially like competently made. And I think the Paul Schrader <laughs> name on the text like elevates it in a lot of people's Listen, minds. Isn't that James's like favorite movie yeah. of that year? <laughs> we will get into it. Right? <laughs> um, take a pause. Like I can agree with a lot of what you're saying, just yeah. applying it to the movie I have seen from that period, which I didn't think was as good as it's. Like, I think in most people's mind, mine included, first reform was like a. <laughs> Return, Return to form. To form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I hated Card Counter, which it was, it was all right. But like it even was, was kind of boring. Though. It was kind of like, boring. Yeah. Even in those Return to Form movies, though, he's like using the uh, kind of like uncanny qualities of like modern digital filmmaking, and you have to True. like kind of yeah. either give him the benefit of the doubt and think he's doing that on purpose and like using that stuff to feel uncanny and unnerving, or he's just like kind of lost his touch this, and it's just like on autopilot. This really like. You really should watch this yeah. movie because it is so 
It's like Mulholland Drive and The Room. I also have a problem with Modern Lynch in the same way, but you know. <laughs> but it's like it's got the the digital surreal thing with the like so bad it's good kind of thing. It's a really intriguing movie. I I don't know. Yeah. I think we should talk about it at a later date because um, I didn't know of all the things I've watched recently. I didn't know what to make of it. Yeah, I really was just like, I don't know how to grade this thing. Like it's awful, but intriguing i will say the digital quality in this film does serve the film perfectly it is like a perfect application of that style and there's still a question in my mind of whether it transcends into something else but part of me is just like i i don't know i just I, don't ever want to watch i do it resent <laughs> you talking shit about first i love that movie. hey that lamp she has in her apartment with the eyeball on it great lamp fantastic <laughs> <laughs> and i like the scene where they float yeah, I like that scene. There's some good stuff in it's there. A good, it's a good movie. I want to throw out one more recommendation of something sure. I watched recently. Uh, I rewatched a movie from 1990 that Brittany showed me years ago called White Palace. It's one oh. of my favorites. It's out of print right now, and you have to like... I mean, I have a full screen DVD copy. That's yeah, like what I got God. to. I'm glad I have that in the library, you know, locked and loaded. But uh, it is a movie that I think is worth revisiting right now. And there are so many people going back to like erotic 90s content. You know, Karina Longworth's recent podcast series is on yeah. that wave. I mean, I might even be preempting an episode she has coming down the pike. I don't know. Maybe she'll talk about White Palace in the next few weeks. Yeah. But like Criterion Channel just had that whole run of like erotic 90s thrillers. Watched all of them. <laughs> I literally yeah. watched every single Same. one. And I think this one is interesting in that context. Because it's not a thriller necessarily, but is in the same style. It stars Susan Sarandon as a waitress at a White Castle type restaurant that they had to change the name of. That's thus the title, White Palace. <laughs> uh, and her customer that she like instantly falls in lust with is James Spader, uh, who's younger than her and richer than her. And he's Jewish and she's a hedonist with no like religious you know, impulses really. And like, they're just so not made for each other, but like instantly recognize like you are the hottest person on the planet and I want to <laughs> fuck. And you know, they do. And all of the tension of the movie is not through what I think of in these erotic nineties movies where like, they go really far out of their way to like come up with these contrived scenarios where like, one person's going to kill the other. And like, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like disclosure right now where they like go into virtual reality to steal files out of like a bank account. Like it's just really insane convoluted bullshit. That, that's how I felt. I watched a uh, dream lover, which love I love dream lover, with yeah, James which Spader. is another James Spader, which I loved the first half, but then it got very convoluted <laughs> with the whole like manipulation and the lying yeah. and you know, this and, I, and that. I love that stuff. Like when we watched basic instinct, which is insanely convoluted, Ugh. it was like a masterpiece to me. Yeah. The erotic well, drama. Yeah. Almost. But yeah. I see what you're saying about like how it follows that erotic thriller. The real like thriller part, like the tension is like the transgression of class, which is kind of interesting in America, like how you're not supposed to cross that line. But like it doesn't push that stuff too much. It's just like something that like bothers them. But they still bone. And like, you know, it's it's like it's a surmountable problem. Yeah. It's not like something that's gonna like ruin them or anything. And it's like the layer that makes it even worse, I think, for her is he's like a widower and had this like young, attractive, rich wife that is dead. So he had like the perfect everyone... uh, Jewish American princess wife. Mm. Right. Yeah. So the his family is so horrible to her. Yeah. Um, but it leads up to this like 
iconic dinner scene that oh man she says like three lines in that that i'm like say nothing more this is fabulous (laughs) It's, it's kind of a perfect movie because it doesn't strain itself too much it's just like this is how you make an erotic movie. You cast the two hottest people yeah. on the planet and just watch them go. Yes. <laughs> like it kind of like steps back. It feels back. organic yeah. almost. Yeah. Yeah. Like not forced like in a lot of films. Ugh. So I think it's like worth revisiting while everyone's on this kick right now. Yes. Um, it's, it does not stress itself out trying to steam you up. Like it just kind of like lets it happen. <laughs> do, do, and James Spader at this time period was just on a roll. Yeah. Like. Just yeah. watching him and his beautiful hair just laying in bed mm-hmm. with his shirt off is enough to... Post-Tough Turf, James Spader. I right. think this is like right after Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then uh, Sarandon's right after Bull Durham, which is supposed to be like one of her hottest roles. Nice. Yeah. And I haven't seen yet. We should I don't know. Watch that. Yeah, me either. Durham? I should huh? watch it. Anyway, I don't even know who made White Palace. It doesn't really matter because the two of them are like the stars of the show. Yeah. Uh, but today's episode will be all about the people who made the movies. I want to say the topic is about why women are better directors than men (laughs) and yet get less chances to make movies. Uh, But actually, it's about people who made one movie and then quit. But we're just split down the gender binary here. We're like, we're talking about two very good movies by women and two very uh, conflicted, you know, complicated movies by men. (laughs) Don't quite (laughs) cut the mustard. (laughs) (laughs) So these are all one and done directors, people who made one movie and then never followed it up. And I think it might be a longer conversation than usual because we're not only talking about the movies, we have to address the people behind Mm -hmm. them as well. Um, And they all have an interesting backstory. Yeah. And I think it's going to be more about the people than the movie in some cases. In some cases. Yeah, for sure. And in the uh, final (laughs) film we're talking about, definitely. (laughs) uh, All that's coming up to you right Right now. now. Feed me. Feed me more feed me more feed me more so we are talking about one and done directors i thought this would be a really cool topic um because there's a lot of them there's a lot of films that are you know someone's only credit and i always wonder why because i'm nosy as all hell and it's you know did they die did they really suck at it did they hate it did some other weird stuff happen so i'm really interested to kind of get to talk about the backgrounds of all the four directors that we're talking about today my selection for this topic is the murder of mr devil from 1970 and this is a film from the Czech New Wave, kind of towards the end of it, um, by Esther Krumbakova. Esther Krumbakova was known as like the set designer, costume designer, and writer for a lot of Czech New Wave films. Like we've two big ones we've talked about: Daisies and Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. Yeah, like when we chose to talk about the Czech New Wave, we just picked those two movies, and they both happen to be written by her. I know, <laughs> and well, this kind of made me think too, like. No one gives a shit who the costume designer is, who the set designer is. But in both of those movies, the thing that we fucking love the most about them was the set and was the costume design. And she sort of has a brand where you can watch a movie like now that like I'm aware of which who she is and what she's done. Like 
when you watch any film that she's involved with, like you're like, ah, I get it. Yeah. How would you describe her like visual style as like a designer? I think it's like gaudy, but sort of like whimsical and delusion mixed with like boring real world shit. Mm. I'm thinking of like overly designed stuff, like excess, like so many little objects and like just like the frame's yeah. like full of stuff and it's all very like girlish in a way. Yeah, it's all shit that I want to have. Right, yeah, exactly. I want to live yeah. in those. It's like whenever you, you go to like an antique mall. Yes. And you're like, there's like a booth in that antique mall. And you're like, I want fucking everything in that booth. It's like her set design. <laughs> also, those like Spankmeyer movies that are just stop motion of little objects. Like uh, Spankmeyer does those little like curio cabinet style animations where it's like an old egg or like a little pot and they'll like kind of walk across the screen her stuff is the same little like found objects that like feel like they're 100 years old by the time she was filming them yeah, yeah. and it does feel very fairy tale too. yes i mean valerie and her week of wonders obviously yeah but this film too is like it was like a kind of suburban fairy tale set it was really beautiful and yeah very whimsical you're right it's like these objects have their own little personalities yeah and they're f- almost like the like a big character in the movie. But yeah, I kind of read up on her a little bit. And she has an interesting background. Like, um, before she got into film, she was in prison during, like, Nazi occupation. And she did, like, a lot of farm work and a lot of forced labor. And you can tell, like, a lot of people who survived that they had to, like, have some kind of, like, imagination to kind of get you through it. And then she started, like, dabbling and um, set design for plays, and she eventually, like, got into film, and a lot of the directors she worked with, like, referred to her as, like, she was, like, a partner. They're, like, she wasn't just, like, the set designer. She wasn't just the costume designer. She was, like, a partner in the film, and it's, like, just as much her as it is me as a director. So I thought that was kind of cool, how they valued her, especially as a woman in that time. Oh, yeah. She was also, um, I didn't realize this, she was married to um, Jan Nemec, who was the director of Diamonds of the Night, which I haven't seen fully. I just am aware of the film. But she was like his muse almost. And like they got divorced. Um, but he they still like had this like really cool partnership with their projects. And she was kind of like that. A lot of these Czech directors describe her as like this muse and um, sort of a lot of inspiration for their work. So yeah, thinking about why this was her her one and done. Like, why didn't she do anything else after this? Well, 1970s, like Czechoslovakia, that sort of like neoliberalism started to fade away and she was blacklisted and she became this like big political target. Um, but by the time, you know, that post-communist era hit, she tried to get back into it and she died in like 1996. Oof. So yeah. it just kind of like, I think like this was her one and done just because like her situation sucked ass and she probably could have done better shit if circumstances were better. Yeah. She was part of a flourishing industry where she was working on a bunch of movies. Yeah. But by the time she got her chance to like take control, the industry kind of dried up for political reasons. Yeah. That's such a bummer. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible. You would not mistake. Once you know about what other stuff she worked on, though, you would not mistake this movie as anyone else's vision, I think. like Yes. And it kind of encapsulates her the best. Well, because she directed it, but like 
And this movie, like, she sewed the costume. She made the jewelry. The whole film takes place in this, like, crowded little apartment, which is what she had to work with whenever she was creating. So this is, like, a lot of her, her essence in um, The Murder of Mr. Devil. Well, I guess talk about The Murder of Mr. Devil a little bit. (laughs) So The Murder of Mr. Devil, this movie was so fucking cool. Um, I love, 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 love like vintage dishes and little like trinkets and ridiculous like food from like the 60s and 70s where it's like it looks delicious but it kind of looks disgusting but i'm still gonna eat it that was like all over this so the main character is kind of like a middle-aged woman i would say like maybe like mid 40s to 50s and she is trying to sort of woo this gentleman known as Mr. Devil. And he is this like chauvinistic, gluttonous fucking pig of a human being. And he just uses her for food. And because she's like really good at what she does. So she makes all these like very intricate gourmet dishes for him where it's like enough to serve like a fucking royal army. And he eats it all in one sitting. And it gets to the point where he starts, like, eating her furniture. Um, (laughs) And then he eats the dishes itself. But it's like, she understands how dumb he is, though. Where she's just like, yeah, I just have to pretend that I don't fucking know anything. And then be like, I don't know. I'm interested. Tell me. I have no (laughs) idea. And he loves it. Like, this is so easy. You just got to fucking feed him and make him feel smart. He's just flattering his ego. Yeah. He just continuously comes back um, night after night to this. This apartment's amazing. Mm-hmm. There's like a fucking tree in the living room with all this like cool, like antique furniture. Her kitchen has like two stoves in it, um, kind of side by side. And it's fairly large. He eats the tree, too. <laughs> yes, he does. He does. the tree. <laughs> he says it's too large. Right. And I don't know, like, kind of, it's the whimsy in the beginning is light, but then as the film goes on, it gets a little heavier, especially with him. Like, there's even, like, one scene where he's, like, floating outside of a window after, like, breaking an elevator. There's, like, little, these little, like, squiggly line circles that pop up on the screen, too. Yeah, he tells her, like, I am the devil. And she's like, no, you're not. And then he proves it by like producing these like <laughs> little squiggly wisp- spells <laughs> that are like scratched into the <laughs> film itself. Yeah. You know? But yeah, I just loved it. The, the plot was great, but I don't know. Personally, like I enjoyed the visuals of mm-hmm. it a lot. Um, and I could watch this like a million times over and over again just for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it honestly, the movie it reminded me the most of was Mother, the Aronofsky from a, like, just this idea that men come in and just wreck shit and they just yeah. want to like devour <laughs> and they take advantage of yeah. everything and they will take up, suck up all the resources and leave you nothing. Like this movie really honed in on that in the same way and kind nice. of that biblical allegory too of like man and woman and woman coming from the rib and all this and that. But like her apartment kind of reminded me of the Garden of Eden. And then man is coming in with all this sin and gluttony and he's just a disgusting and you have the tree centric. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense with the tree. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. Like I I kind of tried to figure out what movie does this remind me of? And I thought of Gene Dillman. 
Yeah. It was like yeah, a more yeah. whimsical yeah. version of that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because <laughs> her entire routine is just producing for his pleasure. Exactly. Yeah. Over and over again. And he just takes and takes and takes. See, I, I want to agree with the biblical reading of it, but the way I thought of it was more like all men are Satanists. <laughs> and that like his yeah. whole deal is like, I live for myself by myself. And like mm-hmm. my entire life is just my own pleasure. That's like the classic Anton LaVey, like Satanist reading. True. And then uh, she like also does that, but has to pretend not to. So she's like, you know, I I make these delicious things for you to eat. And he tests the boundaries of what that could mean. Like his appetite is so insatiable that like she can't actually play by the like male female rules in a way that like satisfies him. Yeah, because and she describes herself as a sinner too. Yeah. She's like, I love like pleasure and like I love like she's kind of a hedonist, but she is a generous hedonist. Yeah. Like she gives to him and she wants I mean, it, to me it seems like she just wants him to like fuck her. Right. Oh totally. And, which he refuses to do. So at some point she's like, All right, this is not like a reciprocal <laughs> relationship. Yeah, and it's like not only is he gluttonous, but he feels so entitled to everything that she has that like when she notices that all of these bites are taken out of her furniture, like this is her space that she has crafted so carefully that she cares so much about. And he's like, oh, so you love some chairs more than you love me? It's like he gets angry. And they're like he- family heirlooms, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. it's like unthinkable to him that she would, like something besides him would be important right. to her. I thought it was like a really fun kind of like battle of the sexes Definitely. movie. It was really funny. He's like just insufferable, <laughs> but his performance is great. Like, Both of their performances are yeah, really great. Yeah. He's, you know, and I love his like pseudo intellectual stuff. He's like, I forget. He says some <laughs> Have you like heard ridiculous. Of Freud? Right. Yeah. yeah. Darwin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, right. yeah. Like he says some like stupid thing that no philosopher has ever said. And he's like, Nietzsche said that. Oh, you should read Nietzsche. You would enjoy him, but not as much as I appreciate him. <laughs> right. I understand it as a man more than you ever could. Oh, right. God. He's awful. Every time she like <laughs> made out with him after she he like ate all that stuff, I was like, God, that guy has to smell so bad right now. Just ate an entire goose and then he's gonna like kiss you on the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, he's like, I want I want that whole goose and then the like skin off of the other goose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> extra, just getting the mouth extra greasy for you. Yeah. <sighs> this is the like ultimate film version of the proverb the way to a man's heart is through his stomach yeah like a hundred percent like if someone ever fucking tells you that again be like go watch you know this fucking mr devil i was also thinking like parents complaining like you're gonna eat me out of house and home like he like literally (laughs) does that everything i kind of (laughs) wish he would have gotten bigger and bigger like like (laughs) that's where i thought it was going he's going to feed him until he just yeah he's gonna pop instead it just sort of like devolves into surrealist it's weird yeah it gets weird like she has a couple dreams early on where you can't really quite make sense of the imagery i'm picturing that boat that he's yeah. on and everyone else is drowning and he's he like, like slapping her hands yeah, he won't let her <laughs> no. on the boat for safety but as that goes on 
and she like actually like, liberates herself from the idea of like having to serve this guy. Yeah. Uh, she just like goes in this surrealist fantasy where she's just like surrounded by men who love her. Yeah. And like, she's just living this fabulous lifestyle where she's like pouring champagne on yes. everything. And, mm-hmm. like, and she's like, I don't even know what to spend money on anymore. Yeah. Right. I keep buying everything. Yeah. yeah she, she makes like dream raisins. <laughs> yes. Right. I love those scenes too. Like at, when you were talking about how she was talking about how she sends and everything. Yeah. Where she's in this picture frame. Yeah. 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 They're so freaking cool. Right. It's yeah. like monologuing to the camera. <laughs> yes. Yeah. While posed. Yeah. Like a Sears photo shoot. Yeah. I'm Brittany. I just need to thank you for picking this film because I fucking loved it. And it's just further solidifying that Czech New Wave is like just the fucking best. It's so like, cool. Like those films are so fun. And I don't know what it is. Like almost every single Czech New Wave film I've seen has a feast in it. Like, yeah. The, just like the representation of gluttony is so interesting. Like I think it has to have some like it's a, political. political yeah. Like yeah. in Daisies. This and Daisies, which she wrote both of those scenes. Like, yeah. The way that they are like treating food as this extravagance that they don't even really need and they're just sort of like right. trashing it. I think was supposed to be very incendiary to people who are like dealing with like food rations yeah. like, in wartime. Yeah. And in Daisies, that really pissed people off when it was these two bratty women like right. stomping on like a beautiful feast. God. But in this movie, it's like very gendered in a different way. Right? Yeah. It's like, you know, the man will continue to eat and eat and eat and she's supposed to do without even mm-hmm. in her own home. Yeah. But he, and he, even like a fireman's ball has mm-hmm. like everyone I've seen has some sort of feast element yeah. overindulgence to it. But yeah, it seems like a class thing. Like the rich can just have their way, whatever they want, and the poor people are getting the scraps. I do love how she shoots food as like individual objects in this mm-hmm. movie. Like she plated everything too in the for the uh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. She's a visual artist. Like yeah. that's how I think of her now. You know, I didn't really know her name. I, we mentioned when we watched those two Czech movies, like oh, these were written by the same person, but we didn't really like delve into right. it. Right, and like. Early on in this movie, there's a shot of just, like, all the vintage telephones in her apartment, mm-hmm. like, one at yes. a time. And then there's, like, shots of, like, individual pieces of furniture. And then so once she starts preparing meals, it's, like, a shot of a goose or a shot of these, like, potatoes that are baked a certain way or, like, uh, the, the raisins or, you know. Mm, all the dumplings. It's, like, a cataloging yeah. of these individual objects. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is when I was won over as, like, oh, this is great. And then once it broke down fully into, like, surreal dream logic stuff in like the last 10 minutes is like well this is actually like one of the best movies i've seen in like years <laughs> you know? she like represents a lot of what i like about the czech new wave movies i've seen like and she worked on yeah. a lot of the stuff that like i think of as like exemplary of what is like the best of the movement to me is yeah. like her visual style and like her domestic designs of like an, what an overindulged bedroom looks like is like perfect visual art to me yeah and it's very like better homes and gardens versions of like the Czech new wave fantasy. Yeah. And it's so fun and interesting to have those like very feminine stylistic images incorporated into like very political film. Yeah. You know, women and their domain is politically important. I mean, all three of the movies I'm thinking of between Valerie daisies and this one are like all feminists in a different way. Yeah. There's like, men creeping on like a teenage girl and Valerie. And then in Daisies, it's men wanting these women to be young and girlish. And they use that image to like subvert male desire. So like they're acting bratty and childish in a way that's not sexy. Right. And like basically just like 
has fun instead of like playing along with yeah. what these men want by buying them lunch and dinner. Yeah, right. And kind of like how in here she's like, I'm the super domestic goddess and yeah. I'm going to like, you know, feed you to death almost. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's like, she owns this space. She's like highly curated it. Yeah. And this man comes in and just like completely like eats it out from under her. Um, she can't keep up with his appetite. So there's some like gender commentary God, in there Also, as well. was she a feeder? <laughs> <laughs> well, she didn't get uh, she didn't get what she wanted. Yeah, yeah. She slightly like seemed like I couldn't tell like if she was just aroused by like okay when he's done eating he, we're gonna have sex or if she was like I am very into him eating everything I'm yeah. cooking. <laughs> no, I think it was like she's like okay eventually he's gonna I'm gonna cook him such good food so consistently that he's finally gonna like get right. on his knees, you know. And I think there's a turning point where he has like this flirtation with her friend in a way that he has never had with her. And he's talked about other women that are like attractive and he tells her like how old she is and how like, you know, how like she doesn't look as beautiful. Right. And then she's like, no, this is not going to happen. And I do feel like that that is like messaging. That we like, we've gotten opposite messaging from other sources of media. Like, if you're there for your man long enough, like if you provide for him, he'll eventually give you what you want. But like, if you start the relationship giving him what he wants, like that's what the relationship is going to be. He's going to be like, yeah, this is great for me, and not give you anything in return. I hate that. Where like, just keep trucking. I'm like, no, yeah, like, I don't want to truck. Directing yourself, I meant to ask you about that. How is that? It's strange, and I won't know how it came out till the movie. See, I can't sit here and go, well, you know, and talk about it till the movie comes out because I don't want to look stupid if it didn't, if I ain't do it right. <laughs> if I, when the movie comes out, if it looks good, then I can come back and say, well, directing myself was like this. <laughs> right now I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. You said in People Magazine it's kind of a no lose situation yeah because if you write and produce and direct and star and the movie don't work they'll say oh he took on too much (laughs) (laughs) and if it it works they go oh he's something else (laughs) there's no way you can lose all right so my pick um for this topic was a film that i've been meaning to see for a couple of years uh called wanda which was directed in 1970 by barbara loden and Barbara was, like Esther, also very involved in, like, media generally before her directorial debut. Um, But she was born in North Carolina. She um, ended up living with her grandparents. She said that her um, upbringing was emotionally impoverished. And then, um, which I feel like probably influenced this film, I think she moved to New York when she was 16 and she got some like modeling jobs. And then she just kind of eventually moved into like theater and television and film acting. Um, she's actually married to Elia Kazan um, as well. And she acted in at least one of his films. I mean, she was really involved in a couple of different spheres, but she saw this news story about this woman who was uh, sentenced to prison for a bank robbery. And this woman thanked the judge after uh, she received her sentence. And she was just like really 
kind of intrigued by the story. So she wrote the screenplay for Wanda, um, which is about this kind of aimless woman who eventually is like roped into this guy's like bank robbery scheme. So she wrote the screenplay and then she like reached out to a couple of different directors and she, <laughs> she said that like, like basically she, she got the sense that nobody really got who this woman was. So she, ended up directing the film herself um it had a crew of four people including her she stars as wanda it was made for like a hundred and fifteen thousand dollars or something and there are only two like professional actors in the film it's her and then the man that kind of ropes her into his gravitational pull and the script was i i think she wrote the screenplay but then it's Sounds like most of it was actually improvised when they actually shot the film. So the movie starts out in um, this like Rust Belt town. Barbara, or I'm sorry, uh, Wanda is um, summoned to court by her husband who wants a divorce. Um, He says she's a neglectful mother and she kind of just agrees. You know, she comes to court late and she tells the judge to just like grant her husband the divorce and the kids are going to be better off with him. And then she kind of just like starts aimlessly wandering around. She she tries to get work at this dressmaking factory and she can't get work because she's too slow. Um, she sleeps with a couple of different men who leave her. There's this scene where like she wakes up in the morning and this guy's trying to slip out and she catches up to him and gets in his car and then he like drives her to this ice cream place. And as soon as she gets out, he like peels off and leaves her there. She like has her wallet stolen. She's just like really totally lost. And then eventually she runs into this guy who is robbing a bar and he like brings her back to his hotel room he's really abusive but they kind of start this relationship together like you get the sense that she understands he's being cruel to her but she really like doesn't have anywhere else to go and it's like this guy is giving her some attention and direction and he just kind of like pulls her along with him with the aim of like robbing this bank. I think they go to Connecticut and they're going to like pull off this, this heist to disastrous effect. And I, I feel like maybe if I had seen this film like three years ago, I wouldn't have, have felt any particular way about it. I mean, it's really, it's a really harsh movie. It is kind of funny just because Barbara or Wanda is like, so kind of clueless and almost a little childlike like she has kind of this fresh perspective that's that's funny sometimes but i just really related to this feeling of aimlessness and like trying to figure out what it is you should be doing and having like absolutely no direction and Uh, Barbara Loden said that the film was semi-autobiographical and that that was like she had experienced that and she really wanted to bring that person to life. And I thought that it was like a really compassionate, complicated character and like really beautifully acted. 
I just like really appreciated her like ability to make this like really poignant story out of very few resources. And she only lived for like 10 more years. After yeah. This. Well, that's so after she uh, directed this, I think she made two short films and she did some like off Broadway um, theater productions, but she was diagnosed with breast cancer in like 1976 and then she died in 1978. So it was eight years after um, Wanda was directed. And I watched this documentary that was like filmed in her home. It's on the Criterion channel called like I am Wanda. And it's like, interviewing in her, her in her house like asking her about her life and like why she made this movie mm-hmm. and stuff and like she didn't really like pull it together after this either she was like i don't really know what i'm doing like yeah. i direct some like stage play stuff now I, I still take ballet classes like i don't really know what to do with my life yeah and it seems like this movie was like the one time that she like had a clear vision and like saw it through and completed it yeah and if you watch interviews with her she's basically like yeah, I never complete anything. Like the scariest thing about this movie was like me having to actually follow through on one single project. Yeah, because making a movie means that you have to like, have like determination to like see a thing through. Yeah, and like this is the one time where everything clicked for her. Was like, I know what this is supposed to be. I'm gonna knock it out. Yeah, and like everything else in her life doesn't have that clear trajectory. Right, uh, and you see that in the character a lot. Right, right, because that's kind of what the character is in this movie. Kind of aimless and doesn't know what she wants. And I think they're like, you know, obviously career directors. I mean, not only directors that like make more than one movie, but that can just kind of like churn, like it is a professional um, vision for them. They can it's just like a do craft, it as a job. Not an art. Right, exactly. And like there are other people that maybe only, I mean, not that I think she only had one movie in her, but if this was the distillation of like, this is the movie I can make fully like fully realized i mean it's a beautiful piece of art yeah i do i have questions about that because it's like yes the character is kind of lost and aimless and doesn't know what to do with herself but also no one encourages anything in her yeah and like the one time you see her smile is when like the bank robber guy was like you did a good job on the bank heist you know she like holds some people hostage with the dynamite he's like you did good work and she smiles (laughs) And then, like, yeah. immediately she fucks up, yeah. loses her route to the bank in the car, gets pulled over by Poor a cop, thing. and then asks the cop for directions to the bank she's supposed to be robbing. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Like, Barbara Loden might have been a director who made multiple feature films if that was, like, encouraged in her. Yeah. But, like, as, like, a self-determined, I need to find myself in this world she like had no direction yeah and like if this movie had been like a big hit after venice when it won that i think it won like the jury prize or something like maybe she would have made two or three more movies yeah but like the movie kind of just kind of died in america and like she just didn't latch on to that career path and I, I see that in the character too it's like she believes that she is useless and so she is i mean i really like that aspect of the film too like basically everybody else I mean, the only other person who really asks anything of her is her husband, who's just given up on her, basically. Like, you, she can't be a mother to these children. And maybe, you know, maybe she wasn't meant to be a mom. But it's like nobody else cares enough about her or wants anything that she can give them to, like, give her any kind of community, really. Like, she, this guy, Mr. Dennis, is using her... And so she has a purpose, which is like really heartbreaking. It's very sad. Like it's this whole, the way that it was shot and the way that her character comes across, it's very much a like, 
you're in her shoes when you're watching it where like you don't have any kind of support system you don't really have anyone to fall back on whenever you're having like a shitty time so the one person that gives you any kind of task and that makes you feel like you're accomplishing anything be it going get a fucking hamburger across the street like she's like this is 100 percent what i need mm-hmm. it just fucking sucked that the wrong person was giving it to her it makes her vulnerable to abuse oh man it was like burning my ass though like <laughs> watching this guy like the part that like the slap was terrible but i got so upset whenever she like went and bought her like cute little yeah. outfits and all her shit and he was like throwing her hair curlers out in the window and like you have to wear a dress and i'm like oh my god right like murder this man right yeah like she finally kind of does something for herself and is yeah. like really pleased with yeah. herself like i have my curlers and i have this and that my in my pants and and then he's just he like strips it away yeah like the her. one thing she does for herself yeah with her own decisions is like just torn apart she's like well fuck all right what do you want now dude it did remind me in that way of the Mr. Devil in that, like, why do people stay in, like, toxic, abusive relationships? And it was definitely, like, in this movie, it's like she has so such low self-esteem that, like, anything that he gives her, like, she's willing to take. But I think both movies kind of touch on that, like, when you allow yourself to, like, stay with someone who is bad for you. Th- this one especially, like, this guy fucking sucks. He's, like abusive bank robber piece of shit why does she stay with him because i don't know like what else did she have yeah and that's really tragic and in killing dr devil she has a very strong sense of identity and like she has her space and once he starts to take that over completely she's like okay this is and she's not getting anything in return it's like this is not acceptable but like wanda doesn't have any real sense of identity and then any time she tries to like fill that in he he rejects it like there's a scene where they're driving together and she's reading what he's done in the newspaper and she kind of realizes who he is and then he stops the car and opens the door and he's like get out and like i mean they're in the middle of the highway like what is she gonna do yeah Yeah, exactly so she just closes the door and keeps going yeah and the tragedy of the movie is that by the end when she actually does find a community that like would support her and just accept her as who she is and maybe give her a place in the world not ask anything of her like basically she finds this bar where people like putting cigarettes in her (laughs) mouth and like putting a hot dog in front of her there's like Appalachian folk music playing in the background like hey you found real human beings who are willing to treat you like a person yeah she's so broken and like just dead inside by the end that there's no solace she can find in that yeah we just kind of freeze frames in her sad face yes like that ending haunted me because it's like what's the next steps for Wanda or will she just feel like this until like she dies well okay so the original news story that uh, Barbara Loden read was like this woman got arrested for being an accomplice in this bank robbery and she thanked the judge for sentencing her yeah and Barbara Loden was like why would you thank the judge for that like she was like really fascinated by that choice and then she filmed an ending where like in that bar the cops come in to arrest oh. her and she was like no that's not sad enough I'm gonna just leave her like <laughs> oh God. dejected in like this merriment and like after all she's been through there's just like really nothing she right. can find joy in anymore yeah like even getting arrested it's like your life has 
a direction. Like, oh yeah, jail. Jail will give you structure. Right. You know? Yeah. You <laughs> know what your next like the whole step thing. is. You know <laughs> right. where to go home. Yeah. It's to. Like, yeah. Drinking beer and eating hot dogs is like not enough to give you any. <laughs> yeah. Joy. I will it sounds say, fun for us, but not for Wanda. We were very excited to see that hot dog because uh, <laughs> yeah. we went to go see this movie at the Britannia as a group because it mm-hmm. happened to be playing after Hannah selected it. And uh, Hannah ate a hot dog in the lobby. <laughs> I sure a did. Goopy, Pizza dog. Bread. Yeah, it was an Italian sausage with a big gluey bun and the sausage was cold. Yeah. Um, but it filled my belly and then, yeah, the hot dog, it was like a, it was like a callback that they, they didn't even know about. And then when we went to see the Doom <laughs> yeah. Generation together, I got another, had another hot, hot dog. dog. <laughs> Never give up. That hot dog was really that good. That was a very good hot dog. And in, in the movie, the hot dog looked more attractive in the Doom Generation as well. There was yeah. like slopping junk food on top of the hot yeah, dog. Yeah, just covered in mustard. Yeah, it's the second hot dog callback. I am callback. nostalgic for those gas station hot dogs. Yeah. Oh, they were so good. On the roller, the hot yeah. rollers. I will say like uh, Wildwood at the Britannia plays movies that you will only see on the Criterion channel mm-hmm. and not on the big screen. And they just yeah. happened to play Wanda that week. And it was very fortuitous timing. Yeah. It, and it was really, uh, I really loved being able to watch it on the big screen. It was like, it, it just had this like, you know, beautiful 1970s film quality that I don't normally get to see in the theater. And it just like, yeah, it was beautiful. I got the sense too that crowd was like a crowd of local filmmaker types. Yeah. And it just had me thinking a lot about like independent filmmaking and like when this movie was made. You were talking about being a crew of like four people, mm-hmm. which is like, even on like by modern standards, that's a very small right. number of people. And if I'm thinking of movies around this time that I think aesthetically this overlaps with, I was thinking of the Honeymoon Killers, yeah, and John Waters' Multiple Maniacs. Honeymoon Killers is another one and done. Yeah. Oh, really? That's yeah. Okay, that's a good example. Whoa. That one and like Night of the Hunter ones that we like probably should have picked, but you know, <laughs> whatever. That's well trodden. We talked about. Yeah. Them. That's right. Yeah, and it's just like this movie is like very inspiring to me as like uh-huh. an independent filmmaking thing where yeah. like I watch a lot of low budget sci-fi and horror stuff because like the reason those th- things get made regularly is because you can do a small production like that and still make money and turn a profit to get money to make your next movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And like this kind of movie is way harder to actually pull off where like you're doing the same style and the same like gorilla like handheld camera like in people's faces kind of filmmaking but there's no commercial value to it yeah and you just kind of have to hope that it hits an audience and is remembered and this one took a long path to being like remembered and honored in yeah the way it has been but like she pulled it off you know and she wasn't around to see the victory lap that it's been getting the past few years but it's it's inspiring that like something this small and intimate and like something that meant so much to like the one person making it yeah actually like has a lasting echo in history yeah and like you know again we're talking about one and done directors like for a woman who felt like she had an aimless path like i'm so glad that she made this film and it it is beautiful like and and very meaningful most people who make movies don't get to make a great film you know like <laughs> yeah a lot of people make movies that are like fine to maybe a little good you know if she got to make one movie and it's like exceptionally great and people love it yeah that's, that's more than most people achieve for, yeah. yeah i also felt that a lot when she's like walking across this marquee at a theater and they showed a poster for the brainiac which mm-hmm. is this like low budget mexican horror movie that i fucking love yeah i was like look it's the brainiac <laughs> like i wanted to yell that in the theater it was it felt like it was of the same cloth as these like people who make low budget horror movies 
but she was making a low budget like bank robbery drama mm-hmm. that like didn't really deliver the genre goods it was more about the character's internal life yeah and, like how rare that kind of payoff is yeah and just just kind of a downer oh yeah like downer <laughs> downer movies aren't really a cash grab like right it was a very like somber vibe leaving the theater it was like well great to hang out with y'all yeah just had that whole image of her like imprinted where she's got like yeah her, you know her, her head, head tilted her hands, and yeah. she looks so sad well we just talked about two women who didn't have many opportunities to make Oh, this films. is the total yeah. opposite, yeah, we were swinging in the opposite direction. Here. So oh, boy. the movie I picked, which I've been wanting to see for a really long time, because I, I like 80s, like Eddie Murphy comedies. Like I love Beverly Hills Cop. I love 48 Hours. And this movie, Harlem Nights, is kind of coming off of the success of those films. And this was directed in 1989 by Eddie Murphy. His only time actually getting behind the camera. And um, essentially, this was his like passion project. It was a big budget. There was a lot of money. I think the budget was like $30 million. And it has Eddie Murphy. It's got Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Charlie Murphy. Della Reese. Della Reese. Oh, yeah. Dude, the list goes on and on. Like It is every big name like black comic of this time period also production and costume design wise like, beautiful yeah just like yeah. gorgeously it looks great. rendered yeah it looks great no doubt and it is i think this is interesting because we just talked about a lot of like female directors on a very small budget and this is like a male star with a lot of money behind it and it's a failure <laughs> i think like you know Before even talking about the movie, I do want to read a quote because I think this is so funny. It's him talking about his experience directing Harlem Nights. He said, it wasn't a pleasurable experience. I just wanted to direct just to see if I could do it. And I found out that I can't and I won't and I won't do it anymore. And the biggest thing is I didn't enjoy doing it. The problem with Harlem Nights wasn't the directing as much as it was the writing. It was just written fucked up. And that's because I threw it together real quick. And then it was disappointing because Richard wasn't the way I thought Richard was going to be. I thought it was going to be a collaborative thing. We would get to work with my idol and it'd be like, this is great. But Richard would come to the set, say his line and leave. And it wasn't a collaborative thing at all. And so like you get this sense that like Eddie Murphy was passionate about this project, got his like idols onto set. And didn't know what to do with them. That's the one difference too, like between all of these directors and him, is Eddie Murphy today could make another movie if he really wanted yeah, to. And absolutely. he doesn't want to. He's not good at it, he doesn't want to. And that that quote <laughs> has made it clear, like he has realized he does not want to make another movie. Yeah. It is bad, it is I'm not glad. fun. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible yeah. for it. And that quote is also very sort of inspiring in a way because like I think directing is sort of a managerial process, like working with the actors and the costume and the set and like having to work with all these groups to make your vision. And it seems like he had the money, but he didn't have the vision or the script about what he wanted it to be. So watching Harlem Nights, and it's like a pretty generic, you know, 
They're in Harlem in the early 20th century. Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor running this nightclub with gambling and prostitution. And there's rivals with the like Italian mob and the police are also getting involved. But it's a, like a pretty standard gangster kind of story. It's like Goodfellas with the all black cast and crew. Yeah. The one thing that's really cool about it is it's like 95% black actors. And, and behind the camera, too. Yeah. I was actually talking to some guys at work, some black guys about the movie, and they love it because they're like, dude, yeah, I love that movie. It's got Red Fox and it's got Richard Pryor. Like, it's great. Watching it, to me, it's like not a good movie. It's not funny. It's a lot of crass humor, and I feel like it is wasting these great comedic actors. Another funny thing I read was like, apparently Red Fox off camera was like cracking up everybody Mm -hmm. on set. And they would have to like stop him from making everybody laugh because he was just like getting everyone into hysterics. And none of that translates into the actual film. Like when he's, (laughs) when he's on camera, he's, I guess the joke is like he's a blind old man and uh, (laughs) it's really humorless and it's kind of taking itself very seriously. It feels like very improv-y, but the improv on camera didn't like work out. Yeah. It's like a loose feel to it. It felt like everyone had a gun to their back. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a funny, there's a part where um, Eddie Murphy is like, he's kind of, I think he's like fat shaming this character. He's like, he's a big fat greasy you could tell he's like improving, right? But they didn't even pick a good take. It doesn't right. come together, right? He's just like that big, greasy, fat, greasy, fat. Like he's repeating himself, and it's not funny. And it's like, here's the thing: why though, did like, you pick that take of all the takes? It's you okay know? to go with a second draft. Like pick the parts from that that worked. Say yes. it with confidence clearly. He might have thought it was awesome. Like it sounds like such a vanity project yes. where you know, hey, this is easy and I have the money to do it and you guys think that it's hard work, blah, blah, blah. You know, here's 30 million bucks or whatever. Like, he probably saw that was like, huh, this is going to take off. He was the most popular comedian in the world. No one was around to tell him no. Right. He didn't have someone he trusted to tell him when, like, something needed more work. It's it's just such an interesting contrast to the other films we've talked about where it's, he no longer directs, not because he couldn't. It's just he realized, like, he doesn't want to do it like, this is hard work. And, like, he even said, like, the script sucks. Like, it wasn't oh, fun to direct. And uh, it shows in the final product. The the line like that, you were talking about, like, the 12 sandwich eaten fat, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, the line like that that really got me was when they were describing the prostitute sunshine. Yeah. And they were like, her pussy's so good that if you tossed it in the air, it would turn into sunshine. <laughs> it's like, what? what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> And like the whole room wistfully like looks up in the air and thinks uh, about like sunshine uh, pussy. Right. And it just like really made no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> All of us understand what that means. Right. What the it's fuck so are you weird. talking yeah. about? Yeah. So this is so like not funny. The plot is so generic. There's very little to like in this. And it's really a shame because I love Red Fox. Like I grew up on Sanford and Stun and I find Richard Pryor to be funny to a degree. He can't be here though. And that's like the one production note you haven't mentioned yet is uh he had been diagnosed with MS and was yeah. like suffering the symptoms of that but didn't tell anybody. Right. So like the sort of standoffishness that yeah. 
Eddie Murphy mentioned was like, he was probably just in physical pain. Yeah. yeah. And like, you see it in his performance. He's very stiff and yeah. like wincing through his line readings. One well, and, and Red Fox would die a year or two after this movie yeah. was made. Like he was an old man. And that that's, what's kind of tragic. Like to me, the production of this movie is more interesting than the movie itself. The fact that the biggest comic black comic of the eighties got his like idols together to do like a last hurrah. And the idea of the film is a good one. Like, let's do some old like gangster shit, but it's like black Harlem. But the fact that it was so disappointing and not well written and no one seemed to be having a good time. Just like, man, what a bummer. Like, what a missed opportunity. Yeah, it was either like just not funny or like painfully unfunny. Like there's this recurring gag i guess where there's th- there's gonna be a boxing match and there's like oh, the a whole stu- mechanism oh. to get a bunch of money <laughs> yeah so one of the boxers has a stutter and like in conversation stutters and the joke is just that he has a stutter and people are he's like you know asks people like oh do you get it and uh, you know richard Pryor says yeah i got it eventually you know it's just like like, Those are so sloppily edited, too. Yeah. Like, they just let that guy go on and on and on. Yeah, right. There's no, like, precision to the editing. It's yeah. just all improv. Yeah, I just, like... <laughs> and I th- I mean, yeah, I think I think Eddie Murphy is extremely funny. It, it, yeah. it just, like, did not come together in any way. And it's it's kind of a long movie, too. It's, like, yeah, like it's an hour slog. and 40. It's- a bummer of a movie. When it is like a gangster drama, it actually kind of works. Yeah. It's just like it's supposed to slow down and like leave room for these laughs that just like don't arrive. Except there is one funny person in this movie, which is Vera, the like yeah. madame at the brothel. I like I like yeah. she is so funny. Kiss my whole ass. Yeah. Yeah. And she Kiss beats my him ass, up sugar. a little. When she, <laughs> she was beating sugar. him up was fun. Well, okay. That scene is funny because it's the one scene where Eddie Murphy shows any humility. Like, yeah. yeah. His whole character is he's supposed to be this like hothead who's like quick to fly to violence and like gets his like boss slash dad in trouble. Well, he shoots her toe off after she like absolutely whoops his ass. Whoops his ass. And that that back alley alley. with the trash cans. Yeah, like publicly humiliates him. And most of the jokes are about how cool Eddie Murphy is, which is not funny. No. Like even the scene that's supposed to be funny where Eddie uh where Arsenio Hall shoots like a machine gun at him for like 30 minutes and then Eddie Murphy shoots three shots back and kills him and his two henchmen. Yeah. Like the the punchline is like Eddie Murphy is so cool and can't fuck up. All not right. not wait, as wait. funny as Vera kicking yeah, his that, ass in that alley. But that scene with their henchman that just fires one that round. That guy at the end. He's that, very cute. That okay. made me laugh. <laughs> right. yeah. That was the one right. thing that actually made me laugh out loud. Yeah, like the two guys like, pop, 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 pop. And then the third guy is just like, pew, this little gun. Okay, pew. that is funny. It's very cute. Yeah. But Eddie, Mur- Eddie Murphy firing back and not right. missing any bullets. No. Like that vanity project aspect of this, which is usually what a one and done director is. It's like someone who makes a movie about how cool they are. Yeah. And right. like never gets a chance to do it again. It's like the biggest detriment of this film. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, betrays a lot of like behind the scenes um, implications of like why the stuff that could have been sharper and better edited and like better considered never happened because he was just like full of himself and no one told him no. So, yeah, Eddie, I don't know. Eddie Murphy, like 
I really like the Dolomite movie he did a few years ago, which I think he produced. Like, I think he can have a creative vision. I think this proved that he can't direct in the sense that like he can't manage all these disparate like cast and crew. And I think the problem with this film was like, it was seems like it was written in a weekend on a napkin. <laughs> it's almost like he's like so successful that like directing is a chore for him. So like it makes sense to just hire someone else to have to answer all these questions from all these different departments. Yeah. Cause as much as he wants to throw Richard Pryor under the bus for like not being present, it's not Richard. Pryor's it's not his fault. fault. And he also said like, Oh, I was on the top of the world at this time. So I would go direct for a few hours during the day. And then at night I would go to nightclubs and like live up this like movie star lifestyle. And it's like, okay. he wasn't fully committed to making right. this a like, good movie. Yeah. Which, and you know, we kind of already touched on this but the first two films we talked about they were like passion projects yeah. you know yeah. this it's is like, like a vanity project right it's like i want to prove that i can do this with, without like not i have a vision that i want to materialize and this is what i need to do to get it done and i need to like gather these resources it's like i want to prove that i can do this which i think you can maybe make a good film that way but Eddie Murphy did there, that. There is a, there is a, uni- like, again, the core idea of Harlem Nights is a good one. If the script was good, it could be an all-time classic. You get these, like, Richard Pryor, Red Fox, all these, like, great black comedians, and if you gave them actually funny stuff to do, it could be an all-time classic, but that's not the universe we live in. Yeah, I suspect that Eddie Murphy wanted to be the funniest in the movie, so there probably were moments where, like, Red Fox did really cool shit, or Richard Pryor really cool shit, and he was like, "Yeah, no, yeah, they're upstaging me." Yeah, I get that in the scenes with like him and Richard Pryor. I get a little bit of that mm-hmm. of like competition. Yeah, yes. he's like trying to upstage him just a little bit. It's weird. I don't know. I'm Be interesting sure, like, if someone came out with the truth. Yeah, I'm sure the vibe on set was like very ego driven. <laughs> yeah. The more people press him for details and in interviews, he's gotten more into like he doesn't think Richard Pryor liked him. And he right. thinks that there was like a like professional rivalry there. No, he had MS, I think he was just dude. like not comfortable being right. in public and working at that yeah, time. Yeah, and life. Red Fox is literally dying. Yeah. Which is like oh I don't I mean, yeah, I don't know what was going on but if that is what happened that's like even more indicative that it's a vanity project that yeah. like you want to bring all these people together because they're your idols but you have no, you don't actually have consideration for like what their situation is and then w- when it's like not working the way that you think it should it you becomes an interpersonal thing yeah. yeah which is like it's the fact that he like he kind of did humble himself with that quote you were saying but like mm-hmm. the fact that he's like sort of blaming Richard Pryor a little bit sometimes. It's like, you have to own your shit. Yeah. As Lisa Renna from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> but you do. You have to own it and be like, no, yeah, no. fuck that up. Yeah, the but whole, it's like, all me. I thought it was going to be collaborative. And then, yeah, it wasn't collaborative because he had MS. Right. And he was in pain, yeah. dude. Like, you're the one that wrote the script. Write a better script. Yeah. And you know, Eddie you're Murphy directing- was probably fucking hungover and coked out of his mind for half of this. Everybody's like, this guy's such an asshole. I want to go home. If he was like partying and stuff every night. It's just so hard to watch very funny people not being funny. Yeah. (laughs) Just like so, so painful. That sums it up, James. It also like that line (laughs) that he has saying like, you know, it was bad because the writing was fucked up because we wrote it. 
quickly. Like, if what you want to do is prove that you can direct and you have resources, why would you not spend more time writing a good writing movie? A good he gave script? himself the sole credit as the screenwriter, too. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's because like, it's uh, I wrote you, a bad dude. movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just so frustrating. Like, you you do have the resources and you recognize that you... Like, and he's... It's not like he is a bad writer. Like, he writes his stand-up, obviously. Yeah. Like, that has been very successful. So, like... Why did you even do this? I, I don't know. It's just very frustrating. Yeah. Big misfire. Well, the final movie on our list <laughs> shows that even if you aren't lazy and put all the passion in the world into your project, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn out it's well either. Yeah. <laughs> I chose the movie The Evil Within, uh, which was released in 2017 and will definitely be the only movie by Andrew Getty because <laughs> it was released posthumously after he died in 2015. Uh, Andrew Getty is of the Gettys. He is an oil heir who poured $6 million of his personal trust fund money into making a movie in his own mansion in Los Angeles. Uh, He started this project in 2002. And at the time that he died in 2015, he was still working on the after effects. He insisted on color grading all of the footage he shot before editing the footage so basically, like, if you shoot, like, 100 hours, but you're only going to use two, right. he's color grading and processing all of those 100 hours instead of just the two. Why would you do that? Because he was not doing this professionally. It's kind of like Tommy Wiseau, um, you know, would, like, buy his own camera equipment because he had the millions to spend on that instead of renting it like every professional production would do. Andrew Getty was doing that as well. Like, mm. he was building his own camera rigs, buying the equipment, doing the animatronics in-house where, like... Rooms in his mansion were dedicated to building these animatronics and like CG effects studios and stuff when like most people would have been able to knock this movie out in like six months and exported some of that labor to yeah. like people who are used to doing it regularly. The final product both looks like it has been worked on for 15 years because it's very dense and like not coherent. But also looks like any anonymous horror film that would have been just sort of like shat out in like a couple months in the early 2000s when he started it. It is an offensive movie. I'll put that out front. I had to warn everyone here that like once I watched it, I was like, the backstory behind it is very interesting. What's on screen will test your political resolve. I think. <laughs> oh man, Hana, we got had a dis- <laughs> had interesting a argument about the word retarded. Yeah, there's oh, a lot boy. of like slurs against mentally disabled yeah. people in this movie. Um, there's a man who is the centerpiece. Uh, I, I think he started this movie as an actor, like right out of college. And he was like well into his like late 30s by the time it was actually released. (laughs) So uh, he probably had different feelings between like signing up for the project and completing it. Yeah. He is very verbose in the early scenes. He's describing this nightmare he had as a kid where he went on this carnival ride. Those like uh, fun house dark rides where it's supposed to be like scary stuff popping out at you. But like nothing really happens and he feels like he was ripped off. And uh, once he gets off the ride, it's like, who told you the ride ever ended? And like uh, the nightmare continues and he can't tell whether he's been asleep or awake since that nightmare happened. And in that opening narration, it's so overwritten and using these words like in terms like joie de vie and the mise-en-scene <laughs> of nightmares and like this derelict carnival attraction. And you're like, why is this so overwritten? And apparently it's because it's the internal monologue of a character with a mental disability. So like when you hear him talk, 
he's doing that full. I'm I'm trying not to use any offensive terms here, but like simple Jack performance. Yeah, where he's like portraying someone with a disability that the actor doesn't have, and uh, he's playing slow. Uh, he lives in this mansion with his brother, who's taking care of him. Uh, the brother buys this evil mirror that has his uh, sleep paralysis demon inside of it. Yep. The sleep paralysis demon is called the storyteller, uh, and he is played by Michael Berryman, who you will recognize from any number of horror movies. Hills Have Eyes. Hills Have Eyes is the most iconic. Uh, he's painted to be like almost like a stone gargoyle in this. Yeah. He's like all gray, and he looks fucking fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yes. All the effects are very cheap, and like the shape-shifting that he does in that storyteller mode are like... It should be, oh, this is cheap bullshit CGI, but because someone worked on it for over a decade, it's so dense and weird and like actually upsetting. It looks yeah. really good. <laughs> I really like it. So it has that uncanny digital effect you were talking about with the, the canyons a little bit, but it's actually something someone worked on with a passion. And the sleep paralysis demon starts to hide himself as the reflection of the mentally disabled and abused uh, younger person, uh, you know, teenager who's I think in his thirties by the time we join him in the movie, and trains him to be a serial killer. He like tells him like, oh, if you kill small animals and then children and then your teenage crush who operates the ice cream shop and then random people in your life, you will get smarter and quote unquote fix your brain uh, and become less disabled. As you commit these murders, you know, you'll emerge like a functional adult human being at the end. I don't think the movie commits to that trajectory in any kind of way because Andrew Getty would not stop working on this project and not complete it. Um, A lot of the behind the scenes stories are about him ingesting large amounts of meth and cocaine and abusing his crew and like waving guns on set and like really just like terrorizing anyone who was brave enough to work with him. And like by the end, the only two collaborators that made it through the entire process were Michael Berryman and the main actor playing the like central character. Yeah. Everyone else filters out and it gives it this like dreamlike quality where like characters just sort of appear three quarters of the way through (laughs) other ones that meant something in the plot to sort of disappear a quarter of the way through and it feels kind of like a nightmare that you can't wake up from. That is funny because there's a scene at the end where two characters are like, huh, I haven't seen a single person I recognize all day. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, real yeah. life context. The implication is that you know he's become a serial killer and has killed everyone right. in their immediate vicinity. <laughs> but more it's like you can't hold on to collaborators because you are a danger to everyone in your striking distance. Yeah. And... To me, this like encapsulates everything that's great and terrible about filmmaking. So I don't know where to come out on this, but it's like what I love about films is like being able to share your dreams with other people and like everyone experiencing the same dream at the same time is like such a poetic, beautiful concept to me. And like movies approximate that feeling. Mm-hmm. Also, it's like an expression of id for like certain artists. So, like, even, like, Tommy Wiseau and Neil Breen, even though they're not, like, particularly great filmmakers, like, the idea that you get a sense of, like, their inner psyche is kind of interesting. And I think Andrew Getty gets at that here, even though he only had, like, a one-and-done cycle. But also, the bad end of filmmaking is, like, rich people can get away with fucking anything because their money can pave over how dangerous they are. 
And a lot of that is a danger to the crew working under them who are just trying to pay their bills. And like filmmaking is a job for most people. And it's not all about artists. It's about like just surviving day to day in Los Angeles. So like, I'm feeling both ends here. We're like, I love the full commitment and the passion and the outsider art of this. And I hate the like using your money and privilege to cosplay as like an important artist and like just stamp, stompeding on top of everyone else in the meantime. That overweighs the other for me a lot. That's probably for the better for you to say that. Oh God, the whole time (laughs) I'm just like, I fucking hate rich dipshits. Yes. Like ruining people's lives, wasting money and resources that Mm -hmm. could be used for better shit. Ugh. Yeah, if he donated the six million dollars to like a homeless shelter, he right. would have done better for the right. planet than if he had just made this new metal movie or that was fifteen years too to late. Someone who was good, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it would have been like, "Hey, I have this idea. You're talented, and you don't have the money to show people your talent. Can I pay you to do this?" Which is what this guy should have fucking done for everything. Well, that's the question. Like, did he actually plan on finishing this film ever, or was it just like a weekend hobby? Between his mm. binges when he would do a bunch of meth and disappear with <laughs> think the weekend sex off. workers for like two weeks and everyone in the crew is like, are we still making a movie? <laughs> uh, Probably that. Yeah. Like, is it just something fun to do when he was bored or because someone had to finish it after he died? You yeah. Know? I think by the time it was at the end, like, I don't know. I feel like it's like, man, we're so close to the finish line. Let's just fucking get it done. And we work. So we spend so much of our fucking lives on right. this. Like. I don't know. I feel like if I was one of the people he was waving guns at and mething out on, <laughs> I would have been like, I mean, I went through hell. I want to fucking see this shit finished. Yeah, right. I see that. So it's like not for not. I kind of am on the slightly opposite. And you're talking about that spectrum. I'm a little torn, but I- I'm willing to hear that uh, human consequences in real life is more important than art. <laughs> but the- I- I'm going to like advocate for the art side a little bit <laughs> in that. <laughs> the, like all the stuff you said is terrible but like yeah you know being on meth and abusing your crew like no one should do that but the like surreal art quality of this thing is kind of unique like i know you said it kind of is like any other 2000s that's how it looks it's the classic it five dollar it's bin not feel. it feels yeah it feels different it feels yeah. more like a david like a lynchian surreal nightmare than like a standard 2000s schlocky horror movie like some of the images in this movie are actually really surreal and frightening and scary uh, yeah and innovative so it was it worth it like probably not to abuse your crew but i don't (laughs) know like 15 years of being on meth and you made this like artifact of weirdness. Like, I don't know. I'd tip my hat to you a little bit. The ventriloquist show, I think, is the coolest (laughs) part. As soon as they go go to this. Yeah. They go to this restaurant in the middle and it has this like animatronic (laughs) things. And he's like asking questions about them. And and I was like, I know there's going to be a fucking puppet show (laughs) with all these people that he killed. And I'm just waiting until that happens. And that, yeah, that was very upsetting to watch. Very interesting. I totally agree that the visual effects were, like, really interesting. And I, like, was very excited for this movie in the first 10 minutes. Yes. And then... (laughs) Oh, that dream sequence at the very beginning is phenomenal. Yeah. Like, genius. Right. Like, the this um, storyteller is, like, 
pokes his zipper into his back and then he unzips unzips his his skin and climbs in very cool and then immediate downturn when he starts the like simple jack performance and it's just like it's so frustrating because the movie is littered with these like little moments that are so like if this could have been what the movie was then i think i would have loved it honestly but it's Like, so hard to get through. So I feel conflicted about this movie not knowing the context of the um, production. And knowing the context (laughs) of the production, it's like, this is, like, like, it's inconceivable to me. Like, this movie is not worth the amount of, like, abuse and grief that this man called. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely not. Like, I wish he had, like, gone over some of his ideas with some people who actually know how to work with people and they could have made a different film. Like, this did not have to... I would be fine if this movie didn't exist, is what I'm saying. I disagree with that. Understood. (laughs) I I think it's worth it. I don't know. I think it's worth it. I don't know. I'm just being, like, devil's advocate. Yeah. Is it worth... I don't know. Like... Yeah, it's worth it. I don't know. That's kind of like the Tarkovsky argument we got in when we did uh, Stalker, where it was like, Uh okay, this movie is like beautiful and whatever, but everyone on the crew was dragged through um, radiated territories that were condemned by the government and all died of cancer prematurely later in (laughs) life. It's like, all right, maybe that's. I know, but like, it's kind of the same argument. argument. It's like, is the art greater than the human suffering? Yes. I don't think so. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I, I'm just playing devil's, <laughs> devil's advocate here. But. And that does like, I, I don't know. I think it does lead to a, another interesting argument because like usually when people have that conversation, it's about like Lars von Trier, who's just like a piece of shit. Like people who like abuse their crew and their cast, but like make great art films. And like, I don't know if there is if you can balance it that way at all like even if the movie is great i don't know if it's worth but like what a, what about like an eddie murphy who has way more resources and then just squanders it and doesn't do anything well, the, with it I, would, I mean the way i would put it is like of all these filmmakers you know this is the one director clearly should not have made a second movie yeah. It's better for humanity <laughs> that he only made one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have no power to stop him from doing what he did, but I think it's good <laughs> that he could not do that right. to more people. Oh, <laughs> I, I think with more focus, a better, <laughs> no, no, really, with a better cause. Script, those cause. visuals, like those visuals. They look great. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, he think, had a vision. He had a vision, I think, with a tighter script and someone else maybe. And without directing. that central performance, it really like drags the mood down. So yeah, yeah the even if you want to root thing. for it, that, yeah, that does tough. not help. And yeah. I just feel like I was trying to figure out like why did this have to be a part of the movie? And I think I think it's it, like the convoluted logic that I was getting was like you have to have a character who is in danger of like being ousted from their house for some reason and they have also some kind of connection to like a supernatural entity and that is like a situation where and not only that but like people don't like take him seriously or they underestimate him because he has a mental disability so like i but i think you could still figure out a better (laughs) way of like making that story his performance was good though you have to admit, like... In what way? No, <laughs> when he's in the mirror and he's, like, playing the mentally challenged version of himself and then he's, mm-hmm. like, playing the psychopath oh, and he, the like, back flips. and forth. I guess it's, like, a well-executed yeah. bad idea. 
But yeah, like, well executed, bad idea. That's but it. Like, yeah. There's a vanity in that projection too, where I feel like the filmmaker is showing who he sees himself as. Where like, if you read anything about the Gettys' fortune and how like cold they are to like succession, they are an emotionally bankrupt household in the same way you were talking about Barbara Loden, but without the the money. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like he sees himself as someone who is misunderstood and underestimated and the world doesn't understand. And he was probably physically and emotionally abused by his family as a kid. So he is expressing all this trauma and like the stress Mm -hmm. dreams he had from that through this film and he's not considering the political social implications of how he's expressing that whatsoever because no one's around to tell him no he is the like producer and the director like yeah. he's he's paying for it and making it so there's no one to like stop his ideas you know so someone would have told him to, like you know drop the mental disability thing and we have a movie we can sell here but he's like i don't really care if i ever finish this i'm just trying to get some shit out he's of my probably brain. this is deep <laughs> <laughs> i'm smart right. and i'm deep these are my therapy sessions right there there are <laughs> nuggets the of cool shit in here like oh, the stop yes. motion animation yeah. stuff's really cool some of the you know we talked about that like little final scene but like the scene that like told me Brittany, this is gonna be a shit show <laughs> was when the brother's like i brought you this mirror (laughs) yes and he's like you just want me to get rid of my hamsters because they stink and then he's like it matches all your furniture you're gonna learn to love this mirror and i'm like what is (laughs) happening the mirror's like in the middle of his it's just weird i think the hamsters were probably a real life detail where like andrew getty was not taking (laughs) care of his hamsters and probably didn't make his stupid mansion stink and he yeah. was like tired of hearing that from people. Those are probably <laughs> so his hamsters the, yeah. in the mansion. Yeah, I did. Honestly, I did think that oh. scene was very funny. I, I don't so know that it was intense. I was like, this is such a bizarre choice it felt to like make. The like, room, like a scene from right. the room. That, yeah, like you're putting a, this obviously haunted mirror with like an <laughs> angel on a crucifix, or you know, and like, oh no, it's that's totally fine. Felt that restaurant they keep eating at that has like the <laughs> television <laughs> screens, right. showing documentary Show- footage of waterfalls and. <laughs> Like, yeah. what the fuck is this? <laughs> what a bizarre Where's trip. our waiter that always waits on us? Yeah. I didn't know that y'all had one. Right. Such a weird stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess the Neil Breen, Tommy Wiseau thing is like what I'm latching onto here. Like, it, it's interesting in the same way those movies are. We're like, it's crazy that someone had access to the resources to get this in front of so many people. Yeah. That's interesting. The people behind all of those projects, including Andrew Getty, are bad. People. Are bad people. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say he he made the best film out of all of them. I mean, the room's pretty special. If you don't watch it with a, a the, rowdy crowd of annoying a good people, f- film. Oh, like the, yeah, okay. The room is like yeah, in a traditionally so like well crafted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the is room like, is more like good in a cult sense. Yeah. This but, is. Could have yeah. been good in a like, oh, that's actually a good, effective horror. Yeah, obviously it like is a mixed bag, but there was something special there. I'm just glad he didn't make more than one movie, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think I can say about any of these other directors. Like yeah. even Eddie Murphy, I feel like a second swing at the bat, like yeah. knowing what he True. knows about his limitations could have made a better film than Harlem Nights. I don't think Andrew Getty could have done better than yeah. this. I wish that Andrew Getty had talked to another special effects person and been like, this is kind of what I want to do. Look at this. And like somebody could have used that in a different movie. Because yeah. yeah. legitimately, those scenes were very cool. 
Um, but yeah, I don't need another Getty picture. I was shocked reading the like reviews of this movie. Like people fucking love it. Like love it. I can see it. It's I got, can see it. It's dude. got specific. I get. I just said, like, you am will I, not find anywhere yeah. else. Yeah, I just kept questioning. I'm like, I, what am I missing? I kind of love the when it hits. It hits really good for like. Okay, yeah, but are right. you five starving? Star- I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. That was actually my next question. Is like, how do you star rate something yeah. like that? I think I gave it three stars. Okay, on Letterboxd. That's it's, fair. I, I think two like, and a half. Two and a half, three yeah. star range. I think is yeah. Fair. I did basically. I did four stars for the effects, and then minus uh-huh. like <laughs> two for yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's, I landed at two and a half. I okay. feel deeply conflicted about this movie, where it's like outside of like being measured by a star rating. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. I have to give it two and a half just because it's between yes. zero and five. Right. Is what it deserves. It is, like the, it is like a totally ambivalent movie. It's yeah. like, this is so good and this is so bad. And I, you're in the middle. I, I guess if I'm going to say anything about this and Wanda together, it's like, <laughs> I think only having one movie benefits both of them and like what makes them interesting because they're so personal to the people who made them mm-hmm. and like feels like they only could have made that one. It, it feels like there's not necessarily a tragedy that they didn't make another. Like they made exactly what they wanted yeah. to make. When it comes to Harlem Nights and Killing Mr. Devil or The Murder of Mr. Devil, it has yeah. multiple titles. It's like The Murder of Mr. Devil, Killing Mr. Devil. And then sometimes in the script, he's credited as Dr. Devil. Do- so yeah. Dr. Devil, yeah. Ooh. So... Those filmmakers could have made more and yeah. you know, even Plenty, better stuff yeah. if given yeah. the time and resources and, you know, given themselves enough confidence to, like, really stand out there. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, especially uh, the Mr. Devil movie. Yeah. Like, I would have loved to see five more movies. Yeah. From Good her. old Esther. And I'm glad that she had such a strong influence on other films, even if she didn't direct them. Yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like she still gave a lot to that movement. I mean, that's what we're talking about here is autourism in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's like... Even the movies that she wasn't the main creative voice on, like her DNA is all over Daisy's. Yeah. It's also detectable in Valerie, but maybe not as much. Mm-hmm. Like this, the murder of Mister Devil and Daisy's are practically sister films. Yeah, one's just like a more grown up version than the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I plan on like watching all the other ones that she's like dabbled in. Yeah, to like see if that like her presence is strong across them all. So they are on Criterion Channel that like six collection film that yeah. she uh, worked on, but like. We also noticed that on YouTube, they had a really nice HD upload of this film on a channel that was called like Classic Czech Film. And it was just like hundreds and hundreds of titles. Oh, my God. Just like a deep bench. You just got to search by the Czech film name and it will come. Yeah. Searching for the Czech title was a lot easier to locate than uh, searching for the, by the other one. Probably because like a lot of like translated titles are they vary. Yeah. yeah right. So next week on the show, we're returning to the Criterion channel. And this is basically turning into the Criterion channel podcast <laughs> at this point. But we're going to watch a Derek Jarman film called Edward II. That's on Criterion right now. I like Derek Jarman a lot. I haven't seen this particular one. I'm sure Tilda Swinton's in it and it looks great. <laughs> and everything else you usually expect from his movies. Uh, we'll talk to you all then. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.